This is a Federal News Network podcast. Senate appropriators are plussing up the defense budget relative to what the Biden administration has requested. The newest release of the Senate budget bills has the Pentagon getting $24 billion more than what the White House requested earlier this year. Federal News Network Scott Mascioni joins me to walk us through where this money would all go. And let's start with the top line numbers, Scott. What are we talking about from the Appropriations Committee and what had the administration wanted? So what the Senate appropriators came out with the other day really was a rash of bills for what would get rid of the continuing resolution and take us to the 2022 budget. Within that was the defense bill, which had $726 billion for the Defense Department. Now, if you add in the $14 billion with military construction and with the Department of Energy, you get $740 billion. That's the whole defense budget. $24 billion over the president's ask of what was a bit more than $715 billion. Quite a big plus up. The thing that these appropriators will have to do is reckon with what the House has done, which is sticking with the president's budget. So they're going to have to have to find some sort of middle ground between these two. And one other thing to keep in mind is that the NDAAs, the National Defense Authorization Acts, have also budgeted above this. Now, they don't have any appropriating powers, but they do have authorization powers, and they kept it at about $740 billion as well. So uh, we're seeing two different numbers here, one from the White House and the House, and the second one from Senate appropriators and authorizers. So it's going to be an interesting battle to see where this is all going to head out. Well, the Biden administration's proposal is just a number. And so you could have $600 billion, you could have $900 billion, So they picked a number. And therefore, the senators are pushing for this larger budget. Why? What's their motivation? What do they say about it? The motivation behind this is the national defense strategy, which calls for a 3 to 5% increase year over year. Now, of course, that strategy has come under a lot of scrutiny because people think that the United States is biting off more than it can chew with that uh, in terms of dealing with extremism, dealing with secondary powers, so Iran and North Korea, and then also dealing with China and Russia, near-peer competitors. It's a, a very large strategy, one that focuses mostly on the Defense Department to deal with a lot of these things. So, you know, that's what they're they're trying to push. And then, you know, there's always parochial interests as well. And, you know, we'll get into that when we talk about where this extra money is going. Let's talk about that then. Where is all of the money, again, relative to the Biden administration's proposal, which was not zero, where would this extra money go, this extra 5%? The big winners out of these are procurement and military construction. Procurement is getting about $10 billion-ish, more like $9 billion. And it's going to uh, where you would expect it to go, to aircraft and to ships. So the senators have f- decided to fund or recommended to fund 16 new C-130Js for the Air National Guard. Uh, that's something that the Defense Department didn't ask for. A whole new destroyer for the Navy, uh, six more F-35s. These are big ticket items. And then, you know, uh, these other things go to project increases, trying to bring up contracts and make sure that they're on time, things that have gone over schedule, those sorts of things. Military construction is something that the Defense Department really needs at this point. They're really hurting. And when it comes to maintenance, uh, they are dealing with a lot of resiliency issues when it comes to climate change, sea level rise, extreme weather. So what this this bill did was actually added an extra $2.7 billion to military construction. It was not in the other bill. And uh, it doesn't exactly specify where this military construction will go, but it, it at least gives the Defense Department an opportunity 
to build on some of these bases and, like I said, build up the resiliency. Other areas where they've added some money, $500 million for the Space Force. It's a huge budget ramp up. It's actually 16% bigger than just a year ago. And if you remember, this this is only a two-year-old military service. There's $500 million for artificial intelligence. And this is a, a really big push for something to counter China and Russia. And, and that, I think, is where a lot of the appropriators were keeping in mind when they, they added this extra money. So this $500 million plus up for the Space Force, Scott, is... A lot of that goes into actually weapon sustainment. The Space Force did not have a lot of weapons that they were in charge of, but they are getting weapons from the, the Air Force now, from eventually the Navy and the Army, from those space sort of assets that they had before. They are also working on a smaller sort of satellite weapons as well. Basically what they're trying to do is shoot up small satellites that will create some sort of network that the Space Force can use quickly and, and adaptably. And, and they're really working with private industry on that as well. These would be fleets of CubeSats. Yes, yes. Just just really a, a network that they can quickly put up. And they're doing this year by year. And already you're starting to put up some of those as well right now. Yeah, those are about the size of one of those dorm-sized refrigerators. And they come in one, two, and three sizes. But that's the scale of satellite they're talking about. Right, exactly. And in procurement, you mentioned F-35s, C-130s. Is there anything in the Senate bill about the modernization of the nuclear enterprise? So this is something that the administration had already been stressing. They're really working on building up that nuclear triad because they feel like near-peer competition is something that they need. And this is something that they need for deterrence. Uh, the appropriators added $373 million, and this is for the Department of Energy, for defense priorities relating to maintaining a safe and effective nuclear weapons stockpile. That means cleaning up a lot of the the stuff, but also dealing with these old antiquated systems that they have. You, if you remember, uh, there, there have been some reports long ago about how they're still using floppy disks sometimes in a lot of these uh, you know areas where they're, they're maintaining nuclear stockpiles and maintaining missiles. So that's some an area that the, the administration and the appropriators feel like they need to amp up and modernize. Right, yes, because I think this is an initiative that started in the Obama administration, actually, is to modernize and upgrade everything but the warheads themselves. There's no new warheads under development, but the silos, the delivery systems and so forth were very antiquated, and they feel they know that the weapons are reliable because of the tests that the Energy Department does, the non-explosive tests, of course, so all complicated stuff. So you've got the Senate plussing up. You've got the House holding the line for the administration. What is likely to happen here? Well, I think one of the things that is important to keep in mind is that there's a lot of authorizers that still want this $740 billion budget. And the HASC and SASC, the House Armed Services Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee are quite large. Uh, and then you add that in with appropriators. I think it's a fairly good chance that this budget is going to end up being larger than what the White House asked for. They're working on a shortened timeline at this point to spend this money. We, we're in a continuing resolution at this point until December 4th. The thing is, is that Congress needs to agree on where they're trying to get what this middle ground is going to be. I think that that seven, at least looking at the, the tea leaves, the $740 billion is probably something that the administration is going to get in the end. And maybe they, they undersold it a bit in the beginning in hoping to get that from Congress. Federal News Network, Scott Mossioni, thanks so much. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving 
our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual, actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from sea to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and 
how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. 
Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.